This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in. I'm Sean Vincent. Welcome to the podcast. Maybe you're new to the podcast. If you are, here's what we do. The podcast is In Self-Defense. I'm joined Almost every time with Don West, he's National Trial Counsel for CCWSAFE. He is a veteran criminal defense attorney, an amazing guy. You're all lucky to have him on your side. We're also frequently joined by our friend Steve Moses. Steve Moses is a well-regarded firearms instructor. He's a veteran of law enforcement. He's now a CCWSAFE contributor. And between Steve and Don, we get to explore high-profile self-defense cases from both a tactical point of view and a legal point of view. The goal of our podcast is to let our listeners know what the legal risks are when you choose to deploy a firearm in self-defense. We've been lucky to reach out to uh, other firearms instructors and experts around the country. They come and join our podcast from time to time. Uh, I'm a litigation consultant. That means that I work with lawyers on high-profile cases, on self-defense cases. I help pick juries. I help develop themes and theories for trial. And in that regard, I've, for many years now, been looking at high-profile self-defense cases in the press. I research them and explore them for what the shooters did right, what they did wrong, what mistakes they made that put their self-defense case in jeopardy. Uh, Don and I explore that a lot. And uh, today, we're super lucky to be joined by Claude Warner. Uh, Steve Moses introduced us to Claude. This will be the fourth podcast that we've recorded with Claude. And this is the second part of our conversation with him about his book that he wrote called Serious Mistakes That Gun Owners Make. And I don't know, the next 35 minutes uh, might be the most concise uh, and rich uh, advice, uh, insights for concealed carriers that we've put together. Claude's really a thoughtful guy. He's got a lot of data to back up what he says, and he's particularly adept at uh, making strong points with very few words. So this is a great podcast to listen to. Um, in, in the end of this podcast, you're going to hear reference to a, a California case. It's not in the podcast, but there was this case out in California where a homeowner uh, encountered somebody at their front door banging loudly. He took some cover in the kitchen and there was a firefight that resulted where miraculously nobody was heard. That should give you enough information to follow on with that part of the conversation. But here we are. We're going to start uh, in the middle of our conversation with Claude. And in this particular part, he's talking about the types of negative outcomes that gun owners can experience if uh, they make some mistakes or practice bad judgment. So here's our conversation with Claude Warner. You know, and I, I'd say that there are not just only in the sense of deadly force, but there are numerous kinds of um, negative outcomes that don't involve that. 
uh, that level of, of even applying any force. But uh, let's say, for instance, one of my uh, categories is undesirable police involvement. And my example of that is that at the Statue of Liberty every year, someone is arrested by the New York police because they were under the impression that their concealed carry license, you know, whatever it might be called by the state they're from, they thought that was valid everywhere like a driver's license. And then they, you know, they see that there's a metal detector at the Statue of Liberty and naturally being good people, they go up to the police officer who's stationed there and says, excuse me, officer, but I have a gun. You know, what should I do about it? Thinking it's like a courthouse or something. And the officer says, okay, well, let me have your gun and now turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. It, well, then typically the way that process works is after about three years and several trips to New York and fifteen to twenty thousand dollars worth of attorney fees the district attorney there will allow them bargain that down to some kind of misdemeanor and take a plea so that they don't become a convicted felon well that's a negative outcome as well and and fairly easy to prevent as we said just by exploring the laws before you travel and seeing what you can and can't do. You know, in New York State, you simply can't have a gun with you. Not like you can't carry it. I mean, you can't even have it in your hotel room. It's it's very odd that even before COVID, for instance, Steve or I could not travel to New York and teach a firearms class because without a New York State firearms license, we're not even allowed to touch a gun. And... You know, and so somebody, you know, one of the incidents in the in my book is that someone was in his hotel room and had his gun on the nightstand and ordered uh, room service. And when the waiter brought the room service, he saw the gun and just left the tray and then went called the police. Police came and arrested him. And he went through that whole thing again. Well, that, you know, that's a negative outcome. So once again, a little bit of research ahead of time, thinking ahead. Is is that is thinking ahead? Is that like a recurrent theme when I speak? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thinking ahead and, and having the options. You know, when we were talking about the the binary option and recalculating uh, what your options are during a dynamic confrontation, it made me think of Little League Baseball. Because I remember being put onto third base, and my dad told me, it stuck in my mind, what a long throw it is from third base to first base. And there I am at third base, the ball comes to me, I got it. Uh, the play is at second base, but in my mind I hear, uh, I'm thinking third base to first base, and I just instinctively threw the ball and ruined the play, right? And, and so then that opened up a, a long conversation about, always thinking when you're in the position in baseball, like if the ball goes here, what do I do? You know, as there's a runner on second, where's the play? And uh, it seems to me that you, you talk about in your book, how when you decide to be a gun owner, that that's a, a 24 seven responsibility. Mm -hmm. Claude. And it, it, part of that is uh, situational awareness and always being, always thinking about, 
Um, if something happens, what are my options now? And I, I'm very big, as Steve knows, on the concept of decision-making. Uh, I, I try to emphasize that a lot in my classes and in my writing. And good decisions are almost always made in advance. You know, and, and you alluded to that with your, uh, your example of being on third base, that while well, you were thinking about your options ahead of time, and, and it, how much time did that involve? Really, probably not a whole lot, but a little bit of thought ahead of time about what is my decision in this set of circumstances and you know if the situation goes this way what do i do if the situation goes that way what do i do um and and i think that that's a valuable exercise for people to go through and they really don't have to make it a, an extremely complicated thing you know what one of the things that i i am trying to learn to do better is make my training and education and philosophical goofiness um, more accessible to people and and I realize that one of the things that people can do is just sit around and, and even if it's only five minutes a day and you see a news report about something and say well what would I do in that set of circumstances um, and and then so you, if you have your decisions pre-made then it becomes a question of it's kind of like a menu at uh, when you go to a restaurant, assuming you can go to a restaurant, depending on where you live, um, mm -hmm. okay. that you, you pick from the menu of well, what's available to me. And, and that makes the whole process a lot easier. But if you haven't thought about it ahead of time a little bit, then the process becomes harder. Well, it becomes harder because you don't have time, for one, when the life or death perceived situations on you and you're affected by some things that are going to affect your reason, which would be the fear uh, for your life. You mentioned that there's also anger that gets mixed in to these circumstances. And you talk, you write some about people being startled, being caught unaware. And, and those are all emotions that will affect somebody's decision-making tree if they haven't already decided how they might respond in certain circumstances. Uh, one of the things that I believe that Claude said at the 29 Tactical Conference is that while it is very advantageous to have a plan in advance, there's going to be some circumstances when that plan is not the exact fit. However, it's much easier to make a small revision to an existing plan at a time where seconds count as opposed to coming up with a whole new plan at the time. Is that correct, Claude? That is absolutely correct, Steve, that you said that perfectly, that it's easier to modify a plan that you've already got than it is to come up with a plan on the spot. You know, as I guess it was, I think it was George Patton who said, no, no plan survives the first test of battle, and that's absolutely true, but if you've got some kind of a plan ahead of time, you can say, well, I can't quite do this, but I can use these parts of the plan and modify it, and that'll work under the circumstances. Claude, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about uh, fear and anger, because you write about 
fear, unreasonable fear, anger. And I notice in a lot of the cases that we've explored that I think that the defender is experiencing um, some emotions on a spectrum. I, I often see fear and anger on a spectrum. And you've seen these cases that maybe start out as reasonable fear, but then end up looking like a revenge killing near the end. And so you, you stress that defenders need to understand their feelings and learn how to manage their fear and manage their anger. And, and I love to hear you talk about that. So it's very much of a trap to let our emotions get a hold of us. Uh, and, and that, that's the point when the emotions get a hold of us and cloud our thinking that's when it's easy. I won't say it happens all the time, but that's when it becomes much easier for reasonable fear to become unreasonable fear. And, uh, you know, then that leads to problems in court if something comes about it. And, and I, uh, one of the sources of data that I'm using right now is, uh, because of the consent decree that the Los Angeles Police Department was under with the federal government for years, every time a Los Angeles Police Department officer fires his or her weapon, there's a, a pretty elaborate investigation conducted, and it's published on the Board of Police Commissioner's website. And, and I have about a thousand of those that I've downloaded that go all the way back to 2005. Well, the ones that I find most significant, and they're the topic of my next book, shameless plug there, uh, <laughs> LAPD, real, real shootouts of the LAPD off-duty. And it's the off-duty ones that are most interesting to me because when a police officer's off-duty, they're mostly in the same position that we are as uh, private okay. citizens. And, and one of the incidents was a lieutenant, not just you know a, a, an officer, but a lieutenant who had some people try to break in his house. And uh, initially his response wasn't too bad, but in the end, then they were running away and he shot one of them in the back. Well, uh, that that resulted in what's called an out-of-policy ruling by the Board of Police Commissioners, which does not have a legal basis but can be used by the district, district attorney in terms of a charging basis and is also used for disciplinary purposes, purposes by the Los Angeles Police. So I looked at that and I said, he started out okay, but then he got mad that somebody had broken into his house and when they decided to break contact, and, and Steve knows that I use this term a lot, our goal in personal protection is to force a break in contact. We do not have to place the suspect, subject, whatever you want to call him, into custody the way the police do. We want them to go away or we want to go away, one or the other. Force a break in contact. Well. Mm -hmm. The lieutenant had forced a break in contact, but then he continued on in an aggressive manner that ultimately he was found out of policy for. Now, what 
ultimately happened to him legally, I don't know, but uh, that basically meant that his career, you know, or certainly any hope of advancement he had in the LAPD was gone at that point. Well, to your point, Sean, you know, that's where we have to think about what's the benefit of this and what are the consequences. And letting our emotions get a hold of us does not stack the deck in our favor and set us up for success. You know, it's unfortunate that we have to be a little bit cool. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. And and the saying in the military is that, you know, bravery is doing what you need to do in spite of fear. And and so there's nothing wrong with being afraid, but we have to understand what's reasonable fear and what's unreasonable fear. And And I just, that's another thing that I would like people to think about because I think that if people have, if gun owners have a plan ahead of time, I help that, I think that helps them alleviate their fears that, okay, I know what to do. I have an idea of what I'm going to do. When you don't have an idea of what you're going to do, that's, that exempl- or exacerbates a fearful feeling. So that's what I'd say about that. That's interesting. And, and similar to having a plan, uh, I think, is the idea of situational awareness. You talk about, the, there's this one fascinating case where a woman, someone came up to ask her for a light, uh, you know, for a cigarette, and she was putting her groceries in her car and freaked out and pulled her gun on him, and he ran off, and she got charged for pointing her gun at a number of people in the parking lot and uh, and you used a term called task fixated and i think especially with smartphones now a lot of people when they're out and about are tax fixated they're not they're not thinking about their surroundings they're not thinking about what will they do in a threatening circumstance they're immersed and then they get surprised and caught off guard i I think that's absolutely true and I, i think one of the things that it's important for us as people who are armed, especially going out in public armed, is that um, there are break points. There's nothing wrong with walking around, talking on your cell phone inside the grocery store. But my personal policy is that as soon as I set foot outside the store, the cell phone stops until I get in my car, I get the car going in the direction that I want it to go, and then if I wanted to use some kind of a hands-free device to continue or to restart the conversation, I could. So, you know, there's that um, idea of actions are not continuous, but they're appropriate to our ability to be aware of the circumstances of around that are around us. Is, is it likely anyone's going to try to mug me in a Publix, inside the Publix? Probably not. Right. The freezer aisle is not where you're afraid, but you know darn well from your research that you're more vulnerable when you're in a parking lot. Exactly. Right? Especially if it's at night. Exactly. So when, I, but, so when I, as soon as I walk out into especially the Walmart parking lot, because Walmart parking right. lots are the real watering holes for criminals and, and their, you know, but, uh, you know, that's the point when we ramp our awareness up and we take it down. And this was a concept I got from Bill Rogers when I was teaching for him that, 
Uh, Bill used, used the example of, and we've all done this, we're driving along, we're kind of like thinking about other things, and, you know, the traffic's not too bad. So we're just driving along, we're a little bit distracted, and we have a ways to go. Well, then you see a few raindrops hit your windshield, and you can tell you're starting to run into a rainstorm. Well, now it's time to quit thinking about other stuff because it's more dangerous driving in the rain, so now I need to focus my attention on what is going on around me as opposed to what I'm thinking about. And, and I will do that. Here in Atlanta, the traffic varies quite a bit from... From terrible to worse? Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, from terrible to worse, I was just recalling my experience with Atlanta traffic. Yeah. Well, uh, where, where I go, I, it's not hard for me to be on a U.S. highway that leads up to the expressway, and the U.S. highway will be almost empty. And as soon as I get on the expressway, then we have, you know, quote, air quote, Atlanta traffic. Well, I can get away with doing a little bit of daydreaming maybe on the U.S. highway, but when I get on the expressway, now I've got to be more on my game, and 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 that's avoiding a, a form of task fixation because daydreaming is a form of tax, task fixation. You know, I'm thinking yeah. about what my problems are, or uh, you know, that nice girl I want to have a date with tonight, or whatever. Uh, that and I'm fixated on that. Now, in the case of that you had mentioned, where the lady was putting her groceries away, well, she had a cart full of groceries, and she was just fixated on putting the groceries in the in the back of her car and then when the guy approached her she said well i would he he said something to me and and it's all on on the walmart the park and lot security cameras that he'd never got any closer than 10 feet from her and he said do you have a light now it was this a setup for a further encroachment i don't know but she immediately turned around, pulled her gun out of her purse, pointed at him, and she said, I was the most scared I've ever been in my life. And, you know, when I read it, I was like, ah, that lady needs some Xanax or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that goes back to your idea that spontaneity uh, is not great when you're a, a concealed carrier. And, and you responding to being startled is when spontaneity takes over. You said something else in your book about uh, instincts that people have uh, in conflict situations, and you say beware the instinct to chase. And you, you, so you talk about the idea is to break contact from the threat, whether you leave or they leave, and and that what that would mean is you never what Andrew Branca likes to say go to the fight, and we see a lot of people get in trouble when they make a decision to go to a conflict that's not happening or, or has happened already. Mm -hmm. Or, or to continue a conflict that didn't need to be continued. That, that's, that's the one that I, I, I taught in a, a force on force course for about 10 years. And uh, I observed this probably the better part of a thousand times that when my, my friend who was one of the role players would um, he he played the part of a um, what, I don't know, what what's the politically correct term for bum? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> uh, can we uh, a, a, a vagrant perhaps? Uh, well, at any rate, so he would 
he was an urban uh, cash solicitor. That's what it was. So he was uh, he played the part of uh, of an urban cash solicitor, but he play, he had played this role many many times, and his instructions were very specific that when it became obvious that the person was not going to give him any money, that he was then to break contact with them and, and just go his own way. Well, the person would inevitably follow him. I mean, this is literally like seven times out of eight. I won't say every single person did it, but seven out of eight did. And they would say, no, I didn't do that. And because we videoed everything, we'd say, well, we'll show you the video. And they would continue to follow him and continue this this conversation. And and that's where I started to realize how that, I, I call it the prey-predator role reversal, where when somebody comes up to you and solicits money from you on the street, they are essentially the predator and they're trying to get something out of you, so you're the prey. But as soon as they try to break contact with you, then they become the prey and you become the predator. It, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that I would never have believed if I hadn't seen it as many times as I did. But so that, um, and, and I believe I have several examples in the, in the book about people who even involving, you know, home invasions and, and that uh, the example that I just cited about the, the Los Angeles police lieutenant that's a perfect example of it, where he was the prey initially, and when they broke contact, then he became the predator and chased and shot at them and you know, got into trouble for that. And, and that's something that the way we get around that is to have a plan about what to do when contact is broken. Um, it's, storekeepers are probably the easiest one to fix that that I mean in in the sense of dealing with the tactical situation because as long as they know when that guy goes out the door I go up to the door I plan to go up the door and lock it so he can't get back in well that prevents me from going out the door and chasing him you know which which well the, and that would have perhaps saved Jerome Ursland in Oklahoma from going to prison for the rest of his life sure uh, he shot the one of the two intruders that came in to rob the pharmacy that he ran, uh, and then he ran out the door for the second guy who ran and actually fired at him while the other uh, perpetrator ran down the street. Uh, and then it gets it gets worse from there. But but to your point, yeah, it, it, a lot of the home invasion cases we see or the intruder cases we see the defenders will have that tendency to want to chase after them if they've scared them away or conversely meet them outside before they get into the house. And that's another example of going to the fight instead of breaking off the contact. And I, I think in your book, you talk about uh, finding defensible places in your home. Don't go outside. If, if I could, don't open the door and don't go outside. If I could provide any level of counsel to anyone who keeps a gun for home defense, that's it. Uh, know who's outside before you open the door. And if it's not somebody that you 
really want to have in the house, don't open the door. Uh, you know that because, like you say, if you go outside, then you're you're going, you're looking for trouble. You're not dealing with trouble, and our our best bet is always to try to avoid looking for trouble. There's a, there's no benefit. Once again, what is the benefit? What is the benefit of going outside? No benefit. So don't do that. Yeah, and one, you know, we've looked at a couple of cases where so our, one of the options that we gave for the homeowner defender was to, uh, we tried not to use the word retreat, but a, a tactical withdrawal to a more defensible part of the home. And I saw in your book, you, you mentioned something about uh, retreating to an area in the home that can be secured and defended. Mm-hmm. At, at least to have some barrier... Um, that, that California case, the recent one that I just mentioned, well, what the homeowner did was when the guy shot through the door, he, the homeowner then immediately uh, withdrew into his kitchen where he had a wall between him and uh, the out, outsider who was shooting at him, which I thought was a very good tactic on his part. It was smart that he didn't open the door, and then when he started taking fire, he immediately withdrew and got into some place. And he had already placed his wife and his child in a semi-protected location before he even went to the door. So, uh, you know, this, this from someone who apparently had no training, but I thought handled the situation as well as it could be handled. And I, I'm like, oh, good for you, guy. You did the right thing. Yeah, and I kind of look at that as uh, deciding where your Alamo is going to be. Where where are you best positioned to make your last stand, and and where are you most likely going to be to to win that gunfight if it turns to that? So here's Claude. One thing that I liked in your book where you talk specifically about the shoot, don't shoot decision, and uh, the reason it stuck out to me is it seems like that should be so clear. And, and squeezing the trigger, that is the actual shoot-no-shoot no shoot decision, but that you know, you've talked about decision-making and having options. It comes right down to that. I, I don't think a lot of the defenders that we've looked at always made a conscious you know, split-second moment to say, what are the criteria that need to exist before I'm willing to use deadly force? And almost from like a military go no go, are are we here? Is it is it justified now? Is that what you're getting at with that? Yes, absolutely. Although I've uh, come to think about that slightly differently now, that rather than calling it shoot no shoot, I refer to it as no shoot shoot. Uh, I like to put the emphasis on the no shoot part first. Because it, as we've seen, we see periodically and or, or regularly, and, and as Don, I believe, mentioned, that in many cases, a display of the ability to use deadly force will solve the situation. So displaying does not necessarily imply shooting. So I, I have reversed the order of that when I talk about it now. But I, I think that that's... Um, a very important thing that 
and, and I think about it in terms now, I've evolved my thinking about this to the idea of having personal policies. Uh, and, and I know that's a, for reasons I don't understand completely, it's, it's repugnant to a lot of people, the idea of having a personal policy. But uh, what's your policy about, for instance, when I was teaching at, uh, there's a ladies event once a year called the Mingle, and I was able to teach there this year, about 50 ladies who are um, were involved in the firearms field, either from manufacturers or trainers or whatever. And I said, okay, write out real quickly, what is your personal policy for simply displaying a weapon, for taking it out of your holster, or if you had to show it to somebody, what would be your personal policy for that? And, and I had to guide them, many of them, through writing out two or three sentences about when you would actually produce a gun. Well, I, I also think that it's useful to have thought ahead of time about, well, what's my personal policy for shooting or not shooting? It, it, and it, that could be something as simple as saying, is there any other way for me to avoid death or serious bodily injury? If there is, then it's a no-shoot. If there is no way for me to avoid death or serious bodily injury, then I'm going to shoot. You know, that that's relatively a simple policy, but I, I don't think that... Uh, people think about it in that way as you've alluded to and um, that's another one of those things where spontaneity is overrated one last thing uh, I definitely wanted to hit before we end our conversation today is you use the term the bad decision cascade effect and I think that's terrific because you know we often talk about there's choices made before the choice to pull the trigger. And some of these cases we look at were so easy to avoid if the defender had made any one of five different ridiculous decisions differently. <laughs> and, and so what's your experience with this and, and maybe some of the cases that brought you to coining this term? The, the, the best one that I, can elaborate on and I put it and this is why I put it in the book is we had mentioned earlier about uh, the person who saw a shadow in his garage and shot uh, mm. well as that that case was actually a police officer an off-duty police officer uh, in Virginia and the shadow in his garage was his daughter sneaking back in, his teenage daughter sneaking back in at 3 o'clock in the morning after being at a party because she crawled out her window and then came back in through the garage. And so he just shot her, didn't try to identify her. So that was obviously a bad decision. She, he didn't kill her, but she was wounded. So then he loads her into his car and drives too fast and gets into a single car crash en route to the hospital. And then the ambulance has to come and get him and her and take them to the hospital. 
Well, that was a, a cascading set of decisions because it, it is impossible, I would say, for anybody who's not a cold-blooded killer to shoot someone and not have some kind of adrenaline dump happen to them. That That's a natural physiological response. And at that point, our decision-making is not going to be as good as it was five minutes prior to it. So it allowed, So then it causes us to, you know, not think as clearly, even less clearly than we were before that situation started. Then we've gotten less and less clear and start making compounding bad decisions, as in that case. Well, yeah, I'm going to get into a single car crash, and after I've shot my daughter, and the ambulance has to come and get us both. Hey, Don, is uh, there anything that stood out to you from Claude's book that you wanted to ask him about while we got him? Well, you know, I remember back in, uh, in law school when I would be required to read something. And then as I would go through it, I would begin to highlight those things that I thought were well said or important to remember so that I would be sure to be able to pull them back up when I uh, needed to review them or present on them. And I'm now looking at Claude's book and I realize that it's page after page after page of yellow. It's all yellow. There is, <laughs> there's such good stuff in here. Um, you know, and the, the ability to explain things well by using enough words, but not so many that people get bogged down is a gift. And each, each page, each paragraph here is, is, a, is a gift, I think, to the readers because it's the jumping off point for those things that we've talked about today to, to stimulate people to think about things, to visualize things that they thought they already knew, frankly, but really never thought about uh, in detail. So I'm not going to just try to pick out one thing or another. Uh, I do, though, really want Claude to tell everybody how they can download and, uh, his, and read his book and uh, encourage people to do that and to read it slowly and to read it more than once because this is a this is a terrific resource for people especially if it's the beginning of their journey so while you do that Claude I'll take one quick look here and see if there's something that I want to specifically ask you about but I don't think so I, I think just um, it was a, a terrific experience to to have to have read it, and I would encourage everyone to do that. Well, well, thank you for those kind words, Don. I appreciate that. And for anybody who would like to purchase a copy of the book, uh, they can go to my website, tacticalprofessor.com, which will then take them to my blog. And at the top of the blog, there is a a menu item that says tactical professor books and serious mistakes gun owners make is in there along with several other books that I've written about indoor range practice sessions and concealed carry skills and drills and shooting your black rifle and so forth and um, I, I that very kind of you to to say that about the book I appreciate that 
Well, you're very welcome. It's, uh, I do want to point out, though, that you do include the tips that we've talked about today, a lot of other issues and uh, aspects of gun ownership and responsible gun ownership. And you even include a section on where not to put your pistol in the toilet. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the bathroom where we uh, where not to put it. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> talking about how many people that uh, go into a public bathroom somewhere, and uh, as they finish their business and leave, they forget the most important thing they took in there with them: their firearm, and it's sitting on the back of the toilet tank or hanging on the back of the door or something that just cracked me up when I saw that. But it's, I've never done that. I've never left a firearm in a bathroom. I tell you, I've left more than one cell phone. And yeah. I, I really, I really appreciate your point there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Sean, this is Steve. Yeah. Uh, I would like to uh, encourage readers also to go back to CCW Safe uh, website. Uh, I believe it'd be under news. There is an article there that I wrote titled Strategies for Personal Protection. Uh, it's based largely on the uh, block of instruction that uh, Claude did at the 29 Tactical Conference. And there's some also very good information uh, put out in that article that I obtained uh, directly from Claude that I think readers might find of some value. Awesome. You know, I Don, when you talk about how much yellow is on your copy of of the the book, I, I agree. I I like to keep notes on a separate document of the things that really stood out to me in my document, several pages long. And the book itself is a quick read. It's about what fifty some pages, right, Claude? So I, I got a not unreasonable percentage of the book copied over to my notes. And here's the last note that I made, and that might be a great way to finish up this conversation: is that firearms need to be a thinking person's tool. Uh, embellish on that a little bit for our final thought, if you don't mind. And it might just be recapping some of the themes we talked about. Their firearms are relentlessly unforgiving of not paying attention to them. And uh, they just require our attention all the time and if people are not willing to pay that level of attention, they really should consider whether, you know, a firearm is right for them. And, and I am not a person who proselytizes. Uh, it, a firearm is a good and excellent tool for many people, and for some people it is not. Uh, and if you're not willing to think about it, then that's, that's part of that decision process of which is better, A or B, having something that's a liability or having something that's an asset. And if you're not willing to think about it, firearms are probably more of a liability than an asset. All right, that's our podcast. Thanks for listening through to the end. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Next time, we're talking to another well-known firearms instructor, Tatiana Whitlock. Until then, everyone, be smart, stay safe, take care.